0: We return this morning to James chapter 2, and our focus will be from verse 8 through to verse 13. That is one section. Our main discussion will be in verse 9 through to the end of verse 11. Hopefully I'm able to touch on 12, but if I don't, well, there's always next week, as one of my professors used to say. I want to talk to you about the seriousness of discrimination. The seriousness of discrimination. I'm gonna touch on the law and focus on one aspect of the law. Then next week I will come back and deal with another aspect of the law. This morning we will look at the condemnation of the law as it relates to the seriousness of condemn of discrimination. Next week I'm gonna look a little bit more at the law of Christ which will relate to the law of liberty, which will also relate to Jesus as the prophet. So, um, it's going to be an exciting sermon if you haven't looked at Jesus in that um, uh, light yet. Well, next week we'll come back. It will still be in the book of James, but I'm going to take some time as an introduction to lay the groundwork for the law of liberty. Today, however, there are many facets to the problem of discrimination. One of the major discriminatory elements that this world, the church, and social media is trying to combat is this problem called racial discrimination. Yet, in essence, it is not racial. Why? Because the Bible says, from one man he made all. There is one race. If there is one race, you cannot discriminate racially. Make sense? So then it is not racial discrimination, but color discrimination, or class discrimination, or today it is social, political, correctness discrimination. You have to say the right thing, or you will be discriminated against. So you can't say mother anymore. You have to say a birthing person. No. No, no, ever no, never, never, ever no. You can't say woman anymore. I I don't know what the replacement is of that. I said last week, in an attempt to eradicate the problem of discrimination, we inadvertently, not last week, last time, participate and create a deeper well of discrimination. If you are trying to get rid of racial discrimination by discriminating against the race, which you are calling a race, then you are, in fact, what? Discriminating. Why can't we eradicate discrimination? Here's why. Humans do not have the answer to the problem of discrimination. We don't. That doesn't mean we just succeed to it, we just bow to it and just say, well, there's no answer to it, I just give up. All our attempts will fail because we do not have the capacity to be anything other than our nature demands. From creation, I should say, from the fall, there was Separation. And a net result of the fall is discrimination, a separation between different class or classes of people. An often overlooked contributor to the state of affairs today is the monumental treatise I call the culture changing book. Named on the origin of species by means of natural selection. Subtitle? or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, written by, you know, Charles Darwin. In this book he wrote, I could not, quote, I could not have believed how wide was the difference between savage and civilized man. Viewing such men, savage men, can hardly make oneself believe Sorry, Viewing such men, one can hardly make oneself believe that they are fellow creatures and inhabitants of the same world. The barbarians, right? The savage people. It is a common subject of conjecture what pleasure in life some of the lower animals can enjoy. How much more reasonably the same question may be asked of these barbarians. Lower forms, lower class, lower man. You find these words in his book. So anybody that looked different to him, aborigines, slaves, blacks, colored folk, were not the favored race, but he was. What do you call that? Discrimination. While I did pick this up as I was reading through some of the sections in his book, which is actually an interesting read, he uses the the word race synonymously with species, and I found that interesting. And some doctors argue, well, he's not actually a racist because he actually uses the word race interchangeably with species. Let's think about that. There is no difference between a race and animal species, but in this difference of race and species, he says there is a favored species or race and there is a unfavored species and race. There are lesser forms of species and there are higher forms of species. Those of the Caucasian species are further removed than those of the non-Caucasian species. So you are closer, if you are not white, you are closer to the monkey. And if you are white, you are further removed from the monkey. He makes no distinction between a species, animal species, and the human race. Why? Because in evolutionary thinking, we all come from the same monkey, right? This dude decided he wants to stand up and walk upright, and then boom, there's the man. No. That did not happen. The problem is that evolution feeds racism. That is not to say that racism cannot exist without evolution. It does. Evolution, however, feeds it. If you have a higher form of species or race that is further removed from the monkey, what does it mean? They should be the Favored race. If you are closer to the monkey, I would probably be me because I'm dark in skin at some of you. <laughs> then you are lesser favored. Make sense? Let me ask you this question. How can you have this philosophy? That's a nice um, hyperbole. How can you have this garbage taught in school and expect kids not to act like monkeys. It's the saying how can you teach people that you are just a halfly formed um, monkey but if you, you are further up the ranking, you are actually more evolved monkey. you will not find the solution. To discrimination in evolution, because there will always be a fight for the survival of the fittest. On the other hand, in the economy of God's grace, when we come to God for salvation, He places all people, men and women, white and black, colored and Indian, yes, colored and Indian, on the same foot. On the same ground, we all stand level before God. Without God, there is no solution to discrimination. Let me put it this way. Without the cross, there is no solution to discrimination. God provides the answer, not based on any work that we can do, that we would do, or could ever do. But God provides the answer, because at the foot of the cross, we all stand equal. The solution is not found in policies or politics, but in a person. Jesus Christ, the Lord. James tells his community of faith the problem of discrimination can be overcome because of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no discrimination, partiality, or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord or order the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory. If you have the faith of our Lord, you should not discriminate. Because you see people through the lens of the cross as blood bought citizens of his kingdom. And so you don't discriminate against God's people. And you don't look down on those who are not God's people but you have empathy and love for them because they need what you have been given in Christ. See, Jesus removes the barrier. He alone can bring peace. Therefore, if we obey His command, then at the same time, we combat discrimination. That's James's point. <clears throat> in verse 8, the counteractivity to showing discrimination is this. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. To combat discrimination in this church, James says, here's the answer. Well, If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not be discriminating against God's people. This means that the answer to the church's problem of discrimination, and it has taken place. You see that the... (coughs) The um, Southern was it, uh, what's a church called in, in Almolia? Southern, Southern Baptist convention and churches are now overreacting to, yes, a history of discrimination. And yet the problem is not to follow politics. The problem is the, the, sorry, the answer is not to follow politics. The answer is merely following the law of Christ, doing what he says. Now, as we continue in this passage, James escalates his discussion. He points out to us, and as he does to his audience, the seriousness of discrimination. There is one point that is repeated both in verse nine. And in verse 11, look with me at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as what? Transgressors. Now look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a what? transgressor of the law see those two points transgressor transgressor or what is he saying this is what you are when you do not obey the law of christ this is what you become when or rather demonstrate when you do not fulfill the law you are convicted as a transgressor and you have become a transgressor of the law that's the main thrust The weight and the seriousness of the sin of discrimination is revealed that those who discriminate against God's people become transgressors of God's standard, of God's law. Now, as you may have come to expect in the book of James, it's never that simple. So he hinges... That main point, which is pretty simple, upon two crucial truths. Number one, it relates, the seriousness of discrimination relates to the nature of the law. Secondly, the seriousness of discrimination relates to the origin of the law. Those are the two points that relate to the major point that you become a transgressor. It's serious because of what the law is, and it's serious because of where the law comes from. And you can actually see this in the text. If you look at verse 10, there's a conjunction, for. And if you look at verse 11, there's another conjunction, for. For those of you who did grammar, you know that those things are there for a reason. And it's important. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become accountable for all of it. For. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. The two conjunctions are crucial because they express the explanation of why discrimination is such a serious sin. Those two fours will tell us exactly why. Because what the law is by nature and where the law comes from. This is why the offense of discrimination is so significant, because it breaks the law and it offends God. That's the grammatical structure of the verse. Now, let's take some time to develop these ideas. Why is discrimination so serious? I've got two points that answers that question. Very simple. Because of the unified nature of the law, number two, because of a single author of the law. The unified law and a single author of the law. So first truth that we're going to focus on is that James reveals that the sin of discrimination is serious because of the unity of the law, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgression the, the verse starts here but if and if you remember in verse 8 that is a quote first class conditional clause Now you don't need to remember that all that is to say is that he's saying for the sake of argument this is true it probably is but say, let's say for the sake of argument this is true and you show partiality then you are committing sin Here the contrast is keeping the royal law and showing partiality. But if you really fulfill the royal law, and then verse 9, but if you show partiality, those two are in contrast. So doing what Christ demands and not doing what he requires. The word here, favoritism or partiality, is in its verbal form and it's plural again. So it's partialities or favoritisms or discriminations. It's plural in nature which goes back to chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers, show no partialities and here it is in the noun form. Same word, just one is used as a noun and the other is used as a verb. Why does James go back to partiality? Well, simply because he hasn't left the discussion yet. He's not moving on yet. He wants to show why faith in Jesus Christ is incomparable with discrimination. You cannot have both. You can't believe in Christ and then discriminate against Christ's people. So now he's going to show the weight of his argument that he started in verse 1. And it's his last um, attempt to impress this truth upon their heart. There is pure incongruence to claiming faith in Christ and then showing discrimination. The two are incompatible. So using the same word, he goes back to the discussion that he began in chapter 2 verse 1. James is saying, but if you are receiving upon faith, you are working sin. It makes no sense in English, right? That's a literal rending, rendering. If you are receiving people based upon the appearance, you are working, committing, or actively performing sin. It's an interesting choice of word. The word that he uses here for performing sin or committing sin is the word work. And it's not usually used of committing sin. So it's, it's an unusual choice of the word here, but the idea is that you are engaging like you would go to work, you do what you are supposed to be doing. That's the idea. You are engaging and working as if it is a part of your natural life, sin. You are habitually engaging in sin. Now notice the result at the end of verse 9. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. How you treat God's people is evidence of your relationship before God. You are a transgressor. What is meant of a trans, uh, by the word transgressor? Well, it's a couple of things that it implies. Firstly, it's a willful crossing of the boundary. It's willfully walking over the line. This word can be translated as a violator. Now that's a little bit stronger. This is not merely walking over the line. It's a complete breach and a contravention of a standard. Think in terms of a line that has been permanently drawn in the sand. A transgressor does not merely step over it. He he looks at it. He tries to erase it. He smudges it. He spits on it to, to make sure that nothing remains. And then he walks on. He contravenes the standard with no regard to what it says and what it implies. He doesn't care about the consequences. The weight starts to to, uh, weigh down on these readers as James used two words to demonstrate the nature or the seriousness of discrimination. Look at the middle of verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing what? Sin. Generally, we understand this to be the missing of the mark. It's basically just that you fall short of a standard. You're not meeting God's righteous requirement. So when you show discrimination, you fall short of God's standard. And the second one is this word here, transgressor. The word sin... Shows that we fall short. The word transgressor shows the nature of the sin. It shows us how we are falling short. It's a violation of the high standard of God. There is a dishonoring and a disregard of the clear expression of His will. Let me illustrate it this way. Think of a clock Or a sticker that is put up on a wall. Do not touch. Now, if you know Kenan, you know that Kenan is going to look at that sign and say, do not touch. He's not only going to touch because it says do not touch, Kenan's going to smudge it and then lick it, right? Because that's who Kenan is. Or in his case, when it says boil water, do not drink. What do you think Kenan's going to do? He's not only going to look at the water, shower in it, wash his car in it, he's going to drink it. Because it says do not. That's transgression. Sorry Kenan. It's not just the act of touching. It's a willing desire and a refusal to disobey. It's a, a, a deliberate disregard for the standard. Oh really, it says don't sit. It says don't walk on the grass. (laughs) Watch me. James shows that this is an active, willing rebellion against God's holy standard. That is weighty. It is not enough for him to point out that they were falling short of the standard. He says no, it's not the fact that you just sin. It's the fact that you're trying to to willfully demonstrate you don't care about the standard. That's the violation of God's law. He intensifies it by saying, you are a transgressor. This is not a mere blunder or a mistake. It's not a lapse of judgment. It's a defacing of God's high and holy law. James says, your actions betray you. You're not keeping to the holy, royal law of God. And as a result of that, you are under the judgment of God's law. If you show partiality, you actually reveal who you are. Sinners who are defined by a disregard for God's holy law. Sinners who care nothing for, the, for God's holiness. That brings to question, well, aren't these believers? Well, if you remember in chapter 2, verse 2, he speaks about them gathering in what? A synagogue. Who gathered in synagogues? Jews, both Christian Jews at this time and unbelieving Jews at this time. James is using this as both a condemnation on those who discriminate against God's people and a means of telling those who are not God's people, you fall short. There is something wrong with the way that you are acting. There's a weight to what he's saying. You're convicted by the law. This is an ongoing action that demonstrates the state you are in. You are convicted and you remain convicted by the law. The word here actually means, what convicted means, to examine or to bring to light. In other words, your action or sin of discrimination reveals, brings to light the state of your heart as a transgressor. Sounds more like an unbeliever, right? convicted by the law that's condemnation you're found guilty by the law james wants them to feel the predicament that they are in and he says you are acting as if you are no longer or you are not under the royal law the kingly law and as a result of that if you are not under the kingly law then you stand condemned by the law of god Breaking the law, the king's law, is breaking the Mosaic law. Now I want to pause here for a moment and highlight something that is significant at the end of verse 9. Look at this word, the law. Is that singular or plural? Is it one or many? Singular, right? That's important. Because James reveals something here that is often overlooked. James reveals a unitarian view of the law. Not unitarian in the theological sense, but unitary in the sense of its essence. That it is one law. It's a single unit. You see the same idea in verse 10. For he who keeps the what? whole law. All of the law. Think of it as all-encompassing, singular law. Again, a unitary idea. What we see here is James saying that if you discriminate, if you do not keep the royal law, you do not keep the king's law, but you discriminate, which means you do not love your neighbor yourself, What you're actually doing is disobeying the law and are condemned by the law as a transgressor of the law. The question is which law? Yes, we will get to that. Keep that question in mind. Which law? Why does the singular law matter? Because James believes, as Jesus believes, as the apostles believed, that the whole law is in view when the law is mentioned. Therefore, the condemnation of the law is not just the condemnation of the one single act, but the condemnation that would be laid on the entirety of the law. James provides a commentary on the law. So if you break one, you break them or, not in the sense that each one of them are, are transgressed equally or individually, but instead, since the law is a unified whole, regardless of which one you break, you are still counted guilty of the entire law. Make sense? Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable uh, for all of it. A unified law and a unified judgment on the unified law. Jews in the, James, in the time of James made a distinction between important laws and not so important laws. So the laws relating to God were significant, most important. Love the Lord, keep the Sabbath. Most important laws keep the Sabbath was almost as equal as loving the Lord. So if you break the Sabbath, that's it. But on the other hand, they would say, "Well, you know what? Uh, Murder is not on the same level. Um, Dishonoring your father and your mother, it's not on the same level because it's not one of the most important laws or commands. I think people have that same idea today. There are more important commands and lesser important commands. Keep your hand here, go to Leviticus chapter 19. The reality is that Jesus, nor the apostles, had this idea of the law. Look at the standard in verse 1. And Yahweh spoke to Moses. It is important that you take note of that word, spoke to Moses. I will get back to this next week. Saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. Why? For I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. That's the standard. You will meet my standard. You must meet my standard. The the verbiage in the Hebrew here is this is an absolute requirement. You cannot falter on it, which means by default they cannot attain it. Look down at verse nine, um, not verse nine. Let's go to verse fifteen. The general law here is love your neighbor as yourself. Expressed now in verse 15 as, You shall do no injustice in court. Listen carefully. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. What is that word there? Partial. Discrimination. Or show favoritism. Same idea. But in the righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Why? I am Yahweh. This is my standard. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? It does. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur, what? Sin because of him. Mm. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, that is the neighbor. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am Yahweh. This is my standard. I have set this as a ruling, as a law for you. There's a number of things that we don't have time to go through uh, in this section. But there's a connection to James chapter 2. Go back to James. Keep all that I've just read in mind. Notice what James says in verse 2 if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothing and say to him, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. uh, Have you not made distinctions? Have you not shown partiality among yourselves becoming Judges with evil thoughts. Why the word judge? Because this is a court setting. This is not a worship service. Notice what James says later on in verse uh, 6. But you have dishonored the poor man that he just spoke about. Honor the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into what? Court. What is James talking about here? He's setting a scenario that would picture, that would illustrate Leviticus chapter 19. In the command of loving your neighbor as yourself, in the situation of a court setting, you do not defer to either poor or the rich. Why? Because it is the law of God that you will judge without injustice. You will judge righteously. What James has just done is he brought the entire weight of the law into the context and said, says to them, you have failed. Your historical context by deferring to the rich demonstrates that you have no care for the law. Leviticus 19 is a, an explanation or a demonstration of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now verse 8, if you really fulfill the kingly law according to the scripture, the kingly law which, which is in line or accords to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Where does that come from? Leviticus chapter 19. There's a historical context that James uses as the backdrop to his condemnation of the discrimination. And he makes them accountable. He says, well, here's why this is so serious. Because you disregard the clear instruction of God's law. It is stated in his law. It's not a minor law. It is part of the law. James sees this as a unified whole. Surely they must have thought, this is not a big deal. I mean, it's only discrimination. We are only showing favoritism to the rich. It's not such a big deal. James says, no. The fact that you showed favoritism to the rich shows that you have got no regard for God's holy and high standard. You violate it the entirety of his law. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, turn over to Galatians chapter 5, makes the same argument. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is as an ongoing reality obligated to keep the what? Whole law. All of it. What's the context here? Requiring Gentiles to be part of Christ by means of circumcision. And Paul says, oh really? Well, let me say it to you, say it to you this way. If you do require circumcision as a means to be part of Christ then you are not only supposed to be circumcised, but you are required to keep every command that the law requires. Why? Because it's a unified whole. Step back and think, when was circumcision given? In the time of Abraham. Hmm, interesting. Is that before or after the law? It's not that difficult. It's before the law. Before the law. Interesting. Yet it is required, stated in the law, as a command given to the nation of Israel. You will circumcise your kids on the eighth day. It's a command. So they think, oh, it's not a big deal. I mean, they just have to be part of us. Just let them get circumcised. It's not a big deal. And Paul says, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because if you go down this route, you are required to fulfill every command that God gives. Notice what he says in verse 4. If, verse 3 is true, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, you got no part in Christ if you are saying circumcision is required for Gentiles to be a part of God's kingdom. You know what happens? If that is the case, you have no part in Christ. That's heavy. Paul shows that if you are accepting as an ongoing reality the performing of the act of circumcision, then you are obligated as an ongoing reality to submit yourself to everything else that the law says. Why? Because the law is a unified whole. Paul understood it. James understood it. Jesus understood it. Jesus says, does not the law and the prophets or the Psalms or the writings uh, speak of me? The law as a single unified whole speaks of me. You will not find in scripture a threefold category which um, is called the slip my mind, tripartite um, breakdown of the law. It's moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. You will not find it in scripture. You will not find it on the lips of Jesus. You will not find it in the inter- intertestamental period. The Jews don't speak of the law in that terms. They understand that it's a, it's, it's a unified whole. It's one law. Now, it is granted, it is helpful to think of the law in terms of how it relates to both to the moral, civil, and, and ceremonial aspects. It is helpful to think of how the law relates to those three areas of life. Because those three areas of life is how we exist, even as Gentiles. But James, like his half-brother, Jesus shows the unity of the law and therefore the high demand of the law. Whenever you read Leviticus, take note of the statement, for I am holy. The law is given by a holy God, which means the requirement of the law is what? Holy. It's a high standard. James is saying that if you are really keeping the royal law, look at, go back to James. There is such a weightiness to the theology that James gives you. If, verse 8, if you are really fulfilling the royal law, which accords with scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So I'm going to take out the qualification and give you the main substance of his verse. If you really fulfill the kingly law, you are doing really good you're doing well you're doing excellently you are right on the money on the right path why because the royal law is the fulfillment of the what entire law so fulfill this law and you have obeyed God entirely But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I know I'm a very serious preacher, but I mean, it wasn't that good. (laughs) Notice this little verb, are. It's called a state of being verb. And the form that this verb is in indicates a past action that has ongoing results. You are and you remain and continue to be convicted of the law and therefore show yourself to become accountable for all of it at the end of verse 10. Become, sorry, not all. become, has become accountable for all of it. What a weight. What a cross to bear. You remain liable to the entire law. If you separate yourself from the law of Christ, guess what? You are accountable, required, liable to keep every law that God has given. That is weighty. And as far as we know, there are the Jews have counted about 613. Consider Abraham, the circumcision is given before the law is given. Hmm. In Acts chapter 15, Peter responds to the Judaizers. These are those who, are, who said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. They consider the law to be singular, but they also require circumcision as a means for them to be incorporated into the community of faith so that they would keep the law of Moses. Peter responds, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We couldn't do it, we cannot do it, and we could not ever do it. The law as a whole was just a weight too much for them to bear. Peter recognizes that. He says, we couldn't keep the law. So why are we expecting the Gentiles to keep the law? James is saying that right here. Why would you ever put this weight upon yourself? Here's the solution. The royal law. The kingly law. Yet, if you break the law to love your neighbor as yourself, you are liable for all of the law. Breaking this command, this is the weight, breaking this command to love your neighbor as yourself brings down the entire condemnation of God on breaking the entire law. It's as if you have broken each command that he has given. The weight that James is placing behind this, in verse 9 and 10, is he saying that if you... Show partiality, that is the breaking of the royal law. It is breaking the the command of God. If you show partiality, then you stand convicted and therefore judged by the law. And the entire judgment of the law rests on you. There's no escaping that. There is also a contrast here between the law of the kingdom, the royal kingly law... And the law. Look at verse 8 and 9. If you are really fulfilling the royal law, which accords to scripture or with scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law. What is that law? That is the law of Moses as transgressors. Again, if you're doing well, you're doing well if you keep the royal law, but you stand condemned by the Mosaic law. James is not shepherding them to keep the Mosaic law. Not by all means. He's saying you have a principle that God has given. It is this kingly royal law, not the Mosaic law. This is what you should aim at, to keep the royal law. There is freedom in the law of Christ, but condemnation in the law of Moses. The law of Moses reveals our sin. The Bible says that no one could keep the law, even the Ten Commandments. No one could keep it as God requires it to be kept. The Ten Commandments was only representatives of the 613 commands which God requires. So to keep the law, to please God, to reach his standard of holiness would mean this. To keep the law is to keep each one of them perfectly, every day, all the time, all the time, all the time. That is what it means to be perfect. To keep God's holy standard all the time. (laughs) If you're alive, you know that's not possible. The law condemns. This is why he makes this contrast. You have the law of Christ. And if you disobey this law, you are liable to keep every other law that God requires. The law of Moses condemns. The law reveals our sin. It reveals your condition before God. The law cannot deliver. Cannot deliver. It merely shows our need of a savior. Let me finish on these two points. What is the demand of the law? Go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Verse 2. Again, I will look at this next week. I'm just going to mention it here. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us who walk Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is a demand that the law has. It's called the righteous requirement. God's righteous demand is that we need to be like him in order to have a relationship with him. Be holy for I am holy. That's my standard. These laws demonstrate my standard. In order for you to have a relationship with me, you need to perfectly keep all these laws all the time, every time, every day, the minute you wake up till till you go to bed, as long as you live. That's the demand of the law. The high demand of the law can never be met. Well, Paul tells us why. The law... For God has done, in verse 3, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We could never, ever keep what the law requires. None of us, whether Jew or Gentile, could never do it. Because it's such a high and holy standard. The demand of the law is way beyond the capacity of human beings. Because the law reveals the divine character and holiness of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Why? Because I am holy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am holy. Sacrifice every day a lamb. Why? For I am holy. On The Day of Atonement, sacrifice a a, a lamb for the sins of the people and and take the goat, take him outside and let him wander, that the sins may be removed from his people. Why? For I am holy. Do not murder. Why? For I am holy. Do not lie. For I am holy. Do not steal. For I am holy. The standard for why we do what we do is God. But we cannot do what God requires in and of ourselves. That's why you have the New Covenant where the law of God is written on our hearts by Jesus Christ coming to live in us. Therefore, when Romans says here that the the righteous requirement of the law has been met, when God comes to live in us, that holy requirement is fully and perfectly satisfied. And you no longer... I don't want to say don't need to keep the law because we couldn't keep the law. But you keep the law because now the law has been kept by Jesus Christ and he lives in us, enabling us by his spirit to do the things that he requires. The law shows not only that there's a high demand, but it shows that we have need. Three minutes. Galatians chapter 324 says the law is a tutor. You don't have to turn there. It's a signpost. It points us to Christ. Tells us there is something wrong with us. We fall short and we need something to change. It tells us we need a savior. James says, well, if you break the law, you are a violator. Well, which part am I a violator of? The whole thing. That's why we need somebody Who is able to keep the law so that his perfect righteousness can justify us and cause us to be acceptable to God? Trying to keep the law as a means to please God is like playing spiritual Jenga. Ever play Jenga? You know those blocks that you put up? Just imagine each law is one of those blocks. You may be able to pull some of it out, but eventually what happens? Everything comes down. Imagine yourself standing in the middle of those blocks. And the entire judgment of the law is dependent on which block you pull out. Which one do you keep? Which is the most important one? You pull the wrong one, the entire judgment and the weight of the law falls on us. That is what it means to try to live by the law. You are constantly under the judgment and condemnation of the law. But we have redemption in Jesus Christ. That is what the law does. It condemns us. It only shows us what we are by nature. Falling short. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Condemned is what the law calls out. But right in the middle of the law stands the cross. Guilty, guilty, cross-justified, sanctified because of the Son of God dying for us. And on the other side of that, no more condemnation. That is what God does in the cross. The full weight of the judgment that remains on those who do not live under the royal law. That's the weight of what James is saying. Well, you think it's a small thing to, to discriminate? Well, let me put it this way. You miss this one, you're guilty of everything that the law requires. And more than that, you're violated so the condemnation and the judgment of the law remains on you. That opens a can of worms that I cannot (laughs) deal with this morning. We can probably deal with it some on Wednesday. But next week I will deal with the second part of the sermon, which is the seriousness of the law as it relates to the origin of the law. And we will look at the law as it is um, interpreted by Christ. There is freedom from the judgment and condemnation of the law by faith. In Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel. Paul says that he was born of a woman under the law so that he may redeem those who are under the law. Thank you, Father, that the righteous requirement of the law is met perfectly, adequately, and permanently in Jesus Christ. We are no longer under the judgment of the law, but under the freedom of the cross. We pray that there are those here who may not fully understand the blessing of the cross. That you would work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. They may find peace at the cross and not live under the condemnation and the weight of the law. Forgive us, Lord, because we do sometimes think of the minor infringements that we, we perform. But sin has no scale in your eyes. Sin is a violation of your holy character. Cause us to be sensitive to who you are and to the efficacy of your word in the power that it has to convict us. Pray that you would work in our lives, magnify your name by saving, magnify your name by sanctifying. So we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.